0: Welcome to The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. On today's episode, we have Hadass Alderman and Adriana Kurtzer, two out of the three female partners of the recently launched Plant Medicine Law Group, a law firm serving the psychedelic and cannabis space. Their objective is to combine the quality of a large law firm with the flexibility, niche knowledge, and personalized approach of a boutique practice. We're excited to hear your story and celebrate one of the first psychedelic law firms of its kind. So glad to have you both here with us today. Welcome. Now, Adriana, um, she's a corporate attorney and entrepreneur who began her legal career as a corporate associate at Simpson Thatcher's Latin American Capital Markets team. Adriana has since drawn on her love of contracts as an entrepreneur in the fields of contemporary culture, real estate and cannabis and the National Endowments of the Arts under President Obama. She is a board member of New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives. She has a J.D. from the Georgetown University Law Center an M.A. from Parsons, the new school for design and a B.A. from Brown University wow. And then Hadass advises companies on matters of regulatory compliance, policy advocacy, risk management, strategic planning, corporate governance, licensing, and dispute resolution. She served as counsel to some of the first equity applicants in Oakland, California, and works with legacy growers in the Emerald Triangle on strategies for conveying their policy goals to state regulators. She is the co-founder of Decriminalize Nature in New York City, campaign director of New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives, and a board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association. Wow.
1: I know. So <laughs> These ladies. Word, Come on. Year, so <laughs> um, We always like to start off learning a little bit about what brought our guest to the plant medicine space. So just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and about how you got here.
2: My background with plant medicine is, um, well, it's something that I feel actually predates my physical life in existence on this planet. Um, My maternal grandparents are from Afghanistan. They were born in Afghanistan. And um, my great grandparents, I I remember hearing stories about them um, that on Friday nights when my grandfather would go to pray, um, the men would go pray before Shabbat, the women would stay home and cook and make Shabbat dinner and things. My great grandmother, would um, make an opium tea and smoke a shisha. Um, And this was like, you know, also it's Afghanistan. That's where the opium poppies come from and Afghan Kush. And um, it's very much uh, a part of the region. And then um, growing up when I'd be at my grandparents' house in Jerusalem, when I had a stomach ache, I was, you know, told to go outside and get some sage, um, which in Hebrew is called marva and put it in hot water, and drink it, and wait, wait, and my stomach ache would always go away, and so um, when I think about plant medicine, I think about it in this very robust way, like um, when I was a teenager, yes, I was interested in smoking weed, but I was also interested in smoking mugwort, which is not a controlled substance, um, but makes you have very, really vivid dreams. So I, and again, I would say the same thing for chamomile. I would say the same thing for peppermint. I think that herbs and plants and of course, fungi, um, all of these plant allies um, are, they feel that they're relationships really, um, because these are living things. Um, And then I think in terms of psychedelic plant medicine, my journey really began, um, my I guess healing journey, post recreation only journey um, began when I was in law school and incredibly stressed out. And a dear friend introduced me to San Pedro, um, which in Quechua is called Wachuma, um, which is a psychedelic cactus. And um, at first, I really didn't like it. <laughs> it felt really uncomfortable and felt like it wasn't working. And I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that whatever my first experience was Um, and over time as I realized it's actually about working the experience not just being like a passive observer. like you're not just popping a pill you have to work it Um, and it's much more like a meditation at least in my experience that's when I kind of fell in love Um, and uh, yeah the rest as they say is history
1: wow so how about you, Adriana? You know that I'm going to ask you this question because it's Friday afternoon. Let's start with some comic relief. You have a an Instagram account, Jews Who Toke. And I think that says it. We need to hear more. We need to understand it. Where's that coming from? What are you doing?
3: I, I mean, you've gone right to like my favorite topic and probably my in-laws worst nightmare
1: <laughs> I'm sure
3: which by the way later in this conversation we can talk about you know how we're going to tell my in-laws that I started a psychedelics law firm but we can <laughs> we can maybe crowdsource some ideas but um you know do who tokes came about in the wildest um way I, I just sat down one day and was just like what are the two things that I love the most and do I have the courage to start a project that just isn't immediately monetizable? I think as an entrepreneur, a lot of times I put a lot of pressure on myself to put my energy into things that I know how I'm going to monetize. Um, and, and I was taking a very serious brain spa um, uh, a, a year or so ago. And one of the things in the brain spa, one of the rules that I gave myself was that I gave myself permission to start something that wasn't monetizable. And Juhu Toks was born. I'm a Judaic studies major uh, from Brown University, and I focused on Latin American Jewish migration and feminist theory, um, and then came to become interested in the cannabis industry, uh, first and foremost from an aesthetic perspective perspective. So after my first book was published by the Cooper Hewitt, and it was all about people using references to the Brazilian slums in the development of the branding of luxury goods, I kind of licked my finger and put it up in the air and was like, well, what's happening now? And this was over eight years ago. And what was pinging back on my very kind of good trend forecaster radar was that the packaging was changing for cannabis, the conversation for the brands was changing. And so that is kind of, that was literally how I entered the world of cannabis was with my um, cultural producer hat on. Um, and then and then Jules Tokes was born from like a natural reaction as I was talking to people for rebranding pot. I kept being like, there are a lot of Jews in this industry (laughs) more wait, you too. Um, And, and it just, it was, so I then was like, well, maybe this is just a really low touch, you know, low cost way of just exploring, you know, this, what seems like a natural culturally funny, often in movies stereotype of like the Jewish stoner on the other hand, the people that work in the industry. On the other hand, the kind of like hidden cannabis user that's like orthodox and from and like in, you know, kind of in hiding. And there are these Facebook groups that I'm a part of that are like, you know, mo- like orthodox moms who smoke, literally. Um, and so it was just that I was like, well, huh, if there's a way that I can destigmatize what the industry looks like. Um, slowly and profiling people then it's and it's a funny a funny way of doing it well, fast forward before Covid we did two in person happy hours in New York that were awesome. People have made friendships um people have gotten jobs as a result of juhu tokes, and nothing makes me happier as a compulsive introducer and connector than to just like you know, after hours, be like just typing people's monikers and telling them, like, you need to meet. It's almost like the stoned Yenta being like, after hours, like, I think you would love so-and-so. You <laughs> should talk. Just talk amongst yourselves, you know? And it it's becomes something. So it's really, um, it's really great. And then just to close off, like, the history, over the summer, this summer, I started hashtag Jews and Delics, To again, start exploring what I started seeing, which was just like, holy shit, there are a lot of Jews and psychedelics, historically and contemporary. So, you know, just kind of exploring, um, you know, exploring that in, in profiles as well.
0: It's so great because that's what we really need, though. We need to find those creative ways to help just end the stigma. And sometimes it's with comic relief. Sometimes it's with just education. And sometimes it's with going out there and changing policies. And I have to talk about how big Plant Medicine won on election night with the legalization of psilocybin in both D.C. and Oregon. And Hadas, I, I want I want to talk with you a little bit about how you foresee this mushroom movement unfolding across the country. You know, do you think that this will be a state-by-state play like cannabis? Or do you feel that federal legalization for medicinal use will look different for psilocybin?
2: It's a great question. And uh, no one knows. But here's, so I think... The immediate point of departure between cannabis and psilocybin is that right now um, the FDA is entertaining, is very much entertaining the possibility that psilocybin may be um, uh, medically valuable. Um, And that's why they've designated it as a breakthrough therapy. And and there's clinical trials happening right now. The same cannot be said for cannabis, um, which is, I mean, ridiculous, but um, it's just, it's not the case. And for that reason, I think it's very possible that we will see psilocybin um, and MDMA legalized at the federal level before um, we see we see cannabis. And um, at the same time, I think that there's this amazing energy right now that we really saw in, come out in full force uh, this past you know the, over the past week. Um, And people, I think it's coming from a a realization that these medicines, these plants, in so many ways, and I I sort of, I hesitate to say they're our birthright, because I think that can be really complicated in thinking about indigeneity and, you know, for whom is peyote a birthright? I don't know if it's mine, because I'm not from um, the southwestern part of the united states or you know it's not indigenous to the place i'm from um and anyways i could sort of go down that road forever it's sort of a wormhole but um i think trying to separate people from something that grows out of the ground is ridiculous and i think that um people realize that and i think that you know when you're starting to talk about DMT, DMT is an endogenous substance. Our bodies produce DMT. Like, how are you going to tell me that something in my body is a controlled substance? It doesn't make any sense. It, it really, and I think actually Albert Einstein talked about um, cannabis prohibition as being um, a law uh, that truly um delegitimizes the role of the government. Because when the government sets up rules that they can't enforce, we all kind of realize like, wow, this actually, this sort of structure that we all created isn't really as strong as we thought it was because they're saying, I can't do something and here I am doing it. Um, And so I think that, you know, the DMT really raises questions of, what are these people (laughs) telling me? Like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing. Um, And I think that the other thing is, it's a question of timing, really. Like these medicines provide, you know, talk about essential services and essential workers. Mushrooms are essential workers. Um, MDMA is an essential worker. People have severe trauma from the past seven months, from the past year, from the past four years. Um, And that's not something that they're, you know, we don't have anything Uh, available um, in conventional pharmaceutical uh, terms that can just cure depression um, or treatment-resistant PTSD. And I'm not saying that any of these medicines are a silver bullet because I don't believe that they are. I think they're opportunities, they're tools that people can use to heal. Um, you know, along with meditation, along with journaling, along with therapy, other things. But um, I think that beyond just the criminalization of nature and separating ourselves from ourselves and that being sort of a farce, I think there is this feeling of we need these medicines now. We don't have time for the FDA to say that we can have them because people are committing suicide um, with, you know, Rapid, at a rapidly increasing rate, and people are dying of opiate addiction, and, you know, I don't mean to knock the FDA process. I think they're incredibly important, and I, I truly, like, thank God for MAPS and for their work, um, and I also think that I personally don't think it's the role of the government to tell us how to interact with nature, um, and so I'm very happy to see people rising up to circumvent that, and I, I, I really, I'm excited about it and support it.
1: I mean, it's so interesting that you say that. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad that we asked that this really may be something that is uh, uplifted and, and put through the process and approved by the government. Um, I was just reading about a friend's son who committed suicide. He must have been, I don't know, 17 or 18 years old. I saw three days ago on Facebook. I'm like, how can that be? We have got to do something. Um, so following on that, what sort of companies will you all be working with? Who, who are you looking to help in this space?
3: So one of the things that we, um, we've we started explaining to people is that we believe that in the psychedelics um, space, and we use that word... For many reasons that Hadass explored in great detail and beautifully in an article she recently published on Medium, why do we use the word space versus industry? But what we what we believe is that as psychedelic therapy uh, expands, as retreats pop up, as this whole world um, comes out from the underground and and multiplies. Um, many different types of businesses will have to accompany it. So what I like saying is, you know, you put at the middle of it, maybe some of these biotech companies or um, the actual people that are, you know, making the ayahuasca brew. And let's say you pop that out. (laughs) Like we are everything around, right? So, in the future, if someone wants to host, like in a future where retreats are legal and someone wants to host a retreat, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's like any other business, right? They're going to need to incorporate. They're going to need to set up partnership agreements. They're going to have to get release forms. They're going to operate as a business. We want to work with them. Um, if there's um, a media company, a, a, a publication, Um, a series of books, whatever, we want to work with them. The fact that it would be focused on the psychedelics space is what we're interested in because we really want to offer our sensitivities and our niche um, understanding to our clients. But really what we want to do is help entrepreneurs who want to start businesses that are connected with, Psychedelic therapies and psychedelic experiences. Um, So we're coming out of the gate very, very um, explicit that the biotech world is not um, is not what we're aiming at. We're aiming at the whole ecosystem of culture and businesses that will, you know, grow around these therapies and these experiences.
2: And I would also add that, um, so backing up a bit, uh, the Aaron Project has this really amazing story called We Will Call It Paula that basically through almost children's book um, illustrates the great, uh, this fear that I think a lot of us have in the space about um, the investor dynamic that is created when capital comes into a space Um, when people who start companies with really good intentions take on capital from people who only care about the bottom line there are a lot of scary downstream effects that happen and this is true in any industry or sector but when you're talking about mental health when you're talking about human consciousness we cannot let investors push for bottom line uh, ways of, of governing and managing, um, because that ultimately trickles down to the patient, and that's not okay, because patients deserve care that's based on what's going to help them, not what's based on what's going to help someone make money. Um, and so one of the things that we are specifically interested in, um, uh, both within the psychedelic and cannabis spaces, and also in addition to, is uh, alternative economy business structures and ways of governance that allow founders to maintain the integrity of the the reason they started their company while taking on the capital that they need to meet their next growth, meet or surpass their next growth hurdle, because that is a reality when you're trying to scale a business. Um, And we've been really fortunate um, to early on have come under the uh, the tutelage of awesome teachers. Um, like, the purpose is um, is a course I took taught by these amazing gentlemen named Derek Razzo and Matt Jorgensen, and they basically teach the tools to do all of those things. Um, there's another person, Bennett Zellner, who's been talking about this stuff for a long time, who we also chat with, and I feel like I'm trying to um, uh, say their names because it's it's important important that people who are in the space or considering being in this space, it's important to me that people recognize, like, don't sell your soul to get an investor. There's people out there that can show you how not to do that. You don't need to do that, and you shouldn't. I don't think you should do it. So there's resources, and we want to be one of them.
3: And to, to piggyback on what Hadassah said, you know, we often joke that what we're doing at Plant Medicine Law Group is either going to be the best thing in the world or the craziest, worst idea, because we're basically starting a law firm, which is a dying and struggling business model, you know, coming out of the gates strongly branded that we are women and immigrants. And we're targeting two industries and spaces that are not federally legal one you know cannabis industry okay exists but is a mess and then the psychedelic space doesn't even yet, like you know have legs yet in certain in certain respects so we're taking on and we're purpose driven so it's like we we know what we have skin in the game in this conversation about um thinking differently about about value and economic value and profit um so we've got skin in the game and we want to be working with entrepreneurs that um, that also have skin in the game. And I think that maybe that is something that we want to do differently in the psychedelic space that was done in the cannabis space.
0: Yeah, it's just such an important topic because we think about, you know, in most places, you know, psilocybin and plant medicine is still listed as a schedule one drug. And yet we read time and time again about these mental health reports, you know, that the community is talking about, you know, specifically psilocybin's benefits with relieving depression, anxiety and so many others like, you know, you've mentioned DMT and other more traditional uh, plant medicines. But just, you know, entering into the space and the legalities of it all, you know, you know, how, where does this stand for, you know, I know you're specifically talking with so many of the businesses and getting them incorporated, but, you know, just for some, so many of our listeners that are, you know, they're reading about this, they're hearing about these potential benefits that, that these plant medicines could have, but they know that it's a schedule one. So, you know, what is it around that? I mean, you know, if you suffer from these things, you know, how can you get access to these medications right now? You know, if, if I know I've been seeing that these, these retreats exist but is it illegal for me to attend them? And what are the kind of the laws around this? Because we have so many people that are interested in it and we're just not really sure about, you know, the legalities around it.
2: Um, Great question. So without giving legal advice, this is not legal advice. I would say the following one. If you are struggling with your mental health, find somebody Um, someone professional, whether they're, you know, in the spiritual realm or the psychotherapy realm to talk to, because even if that's not like your ideal thing, I think something is better than nothing. So make sure, make sure you're doing that. Um, Two, you can try to sign up for a clinical trial. Um, There are websites, if you go to MAPS website, um, I am almost positive that those, that information is, is uh, you can be can be found there, and I know that if you sign up for Maps's newsletter, they sometimes put out blasts about um, clinical trials and participants in those. Um, and actually, there are certain clinics that are now being given a sort of limited license um, to start doing um, psychedelic assisted therapy. So, uh, do, you know, do some research, go online. I mean, honestly, Instagram is like where a lot of this stuff is being talked about. Um, so, so look for that. And you can also, you know, if this is something that's financially viable for you, um, you can go to Jamaica, um, go to Amsterdam. Um, there's, there's, varying degrees of of risk there because you know it's for me like it's it's hard for me as someone that's here to vet anything that's not right in front of me and actually like say yes you should go do this and and that's not what I'm saying I'm just putting it out there as an option um Mm -hmm. to be considered um and you know there's also there are underground ground clinics and I don't want to I don't feel comfortable elaborating too much on that but Mm -hmm. They're out there.
3: One of the things that I'll add is that two things for people to, to think about as we're navigating this world of, 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 of gray transitions, um, two things to put out there is the concept of, of harm reduction. Um, people, you know, one of the things I, I think about a lot is in this process where psychedelics are going to be sought out as therapy, we still have the reality that a lot of doctors that have MDs, uh, psychologists, and psych- uh, psychiatrists, they were not taught this at school. So we're going to have a situation in the history of the, the United States, for example, where demand and questions about these therapies are going to be asked and we have to support doctors in getting the information that they need. And so there's great stuff going on. But, you know, if you talk about gaps, right, in demand and supply, because that's, we're, we're, well, that's what your question really is about, right? So you've got the access question, but then you also have the education um, of, of, of doctors that might be able to steer you in the, in the direction of a good therapy. The other thing is that, and there's some great um, organizations out there, maybe we can follow up and with the names and you can add them in your notes, um, that also alert, especially women, to the risks of sexual violence in um, retreat situations or, um, you know, these situations abroad where they go for, uh, you know, plant medicine healing and the experience ends up being anything but healing. So I think that, you know, as everything that has a positive side, there's also a negative side. And the third thing I'd say is, you know, as we start exp- exploring psychedelic therapies, there's also the universe of 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 SSRIs and other, you know, medications that we have yet to understand how they might interact with. So under that conversation about harm reduction, then comes the question What doctors do we know of or can, you know, can come through the pipeline that can then help the population navigate how to engage in psychedelic therapy if they are also getting other types of help for for their for their uh, their mental health. So I think that, you know, this this transition is not just going to be, oh, it's legal today and or it's illegal today. It's legal tomorrow. That, that's also what concerns us, right? Like all these layers of, of, of individuals and practices and businesses that have to basically help you then have a universe where it's safe to engage.
2: One other thing I would add is um, to quote Timothy Leary, find the others. There's a reason that there are so many uh, psychedelic societies popping up all over the place. And one of the things I actually I really love about Um, the way psychedelic renaissance is happening here in the U S is that it feels very, although there are some national things, it feels very hyper local. Like there's a Brooklyn psychedelic society and then there's a New York city psychedelic society. There's a San Francisco psychedelic society. And um, that same uh, that those groups of people are going to know like location specific Intel Um, that people who don't live in your neighborhood or your city might not. Um, so. And uh, again, to piggyback on that, I think
3: what I'm excited about is a world in which different people of different backgrounds can seek either individual or group therapy situations that very much fit their background. So yesterday I was on a, a Zendo project, um webinar and zendo is a great 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 harm reduction community and an educational platform um that we should also share the link with the audience and and there was a wonderful conversation about um the bipoc community you know needing ceremonies and needing healing in, in environments where they don't have to feel like they need to explain themselves right um Another really exciting thing that I'm seeing popping up is um, maybe more faith specific. I don't know what the right term is, but like culturally specific need. Um, so I'm part of the Jewish Entheogenic society that was started by uh, rabbis Zach Kamenitz And it's got some really great people um, involved. And it's begging the question, you know, in terms of the cultural preparation and then the actual psychedelic experience. And then the integration experience, what would that look like if the vocabulary going into it and then integrating it into your life were more uh, a reflection of your culture? So I think so far, tied to your question about where do people go for these things, many of us haven't wanted to go to Peru to have a certain experience because the vocabulary of that experience, while amazing and appropriate and a great fit for some people may not be a fit for the other person, or we want to integrate the experience into our religious calendar during the year. So I think that what's really exciting and one of the things I'm hosting um, this month is a conversation between a handful of Jews and Christians that are engaged in their own communities with this question of what does, you know, entheogenic religious practice and ritual uh, look like. So again a world in which people have very a, a wide range of choices and not everything is either you know based on Buddhist philosophy or on, on, on you know the Senhu church you know those are great for people that, that they serve, but then there are other people that need other things
1: um, And and before I I ask you uh, the next question, I just want to thank you because I am somebody who takes, um, I think that we have to put these things out in the open, um, some SSRI medication. And I didn't think about that. I've never thought about it. I do everything on top of it. So, um, wow. Thank you for pointing that out. So, you obviously are setting the world on fire, you two ladies, and, um, and and maybe we covered this, but what is the main thing that psychedelics can learn from cannabis? I mean, it is a bit of a shit show with cannabis. We're trying to get it together, and psychedelics, Gina and I have talked about this. That we feel like the people that are involved in it are so, um, I don't it's, they seem to be a peaceful group and, um, a thoughtful group, just that the people that we're starting to come across. So, um, maybe
0: more, maybe more forthright, like just really matter of fact, um, with the psychedelic movement, it's like, this is the facts, this is where we're coming from, where with cannabis, we feel like there's so much just love of the plant and the culture that sometimes that oversees some of the kind of, honest nature that we need to talk about how to move these things forward. Sometimes people just love for the whole culture around it, um, gets in the way of some of the policy and the ways that we know
3: that we need to move forward with this. So I think that I'll, I'll answer that question by focusing on two things. One is science and the other thing is, um, is equity. So I think the, One, we can debate, I mean, this is a larger debate among some people who know a lot about it, but let's just say it simply for a broad audience. Um, The efforts by organizations like MAPS have really put science first. There also has been access to high-quality substances or the substances needed to conduct these high-quality studies in formal scientific Settings. What upsets me to no end is that in cannabis, there was a desire to do the same thing. There is the desire. There is the ability to test the science of cannabis. Unfortunately, in the United States, the way that the DEA has limited the production of high-quality cannabis scientific studies means that we find ourselves in a vicious cycle where you have bad science because you have bad weed because you had bad access to good weed. So, you know, nothing is more frustrating than what Sue Sisley, you know, goes through or, you know, the fact that if you go into a, an amazing scientific, you know, study, the participants are like, sorry, but the weed you're giving me is dank compared <laughs> to like the stuff that I can get underground that is what I really need for my issue or for my, for my, you know, for my, my health condition or whatever it is that the study may cover. So I think that you have this almost like you're comparing apples and oranges, right? We can't be too critical about what happened in cannabis because it, 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 it's, it's that vicious cycle, but psychedelics has been able, I think has been able to learn from, from that and come out, um, science first. The other issue is I feel like cannabis the the industry exploded and then now people are asking questions about why are there so many white men at conferences why is the access to capital so problematic how are we going to fix the problem with you know with this measure or that measure and so I think that a lot of us are asking those questions about representation very early on, um, quite forcefully, quite politically, um, you know, to maybe avoid what happened in in cannabis. We'll see. We'll see how much of it, you know, we can do better. Um, I always, you know, the the Debbie Downer in me always thinks that there's like an inevitability to capitalism and, you know, white dudes coming in. (laughs) But, you know, we can hope. We can hope.
0: And and thinking about that hyper localness that you had talked about before, and how you know specifically when I think about the decriminalized nature uh, propositions that went through, it was so specific to cities, right? You know, so we see Ann Arbor, and then we see this. City. So, do we, do you feel that that's really what's going to going to help move the psychedelics movement forward is really a focused effort of these hyper local initiatives, or do you think that? You know, maybe a collaboration of this kind of small industry of psychedelic uh, companies and organizations need to band together to to focus on uh, federal legalization. Because I do see that when I see each city pop up with these these laws, it's like, you know, what can I do in my city of Pittsburgh? Like, how can I help change? this conversation locally and how that can maybe have a ripple effect to get the lobbyists in Harrisburg and, and, in and, and forthright in our, in our regional community. But I like this idea of hyper local, And I'm just thinking about how our listeners could think about how they could use that in their own communities to bring up and hopefully bring this conversation to the forefront.
2: So, um, David Bronner of Dr. Bronner's answers that question in A blog post and I think he he did so very intelligently Um, I don't remember what he said verbatim but it was something to the effect of we're all trying a bunch of different ways we have to try all of the ways all of these different efforts coming from you know different locales and uh, addressing different levels of government are going to work at best synergistically and at a minimum, let's do this on parallel tracks. And um, you know, ideally if we're all at least moving in the same direction, we will get there um, perhaps not as quickly as we'd like, but we will get there and we'll get there in a good way. Um, and I, something that's only recently occurred to me um, is that I actually think that people's involvement in the sort of decarceration of, um, our ability to access these medicines, the, the involvement in the struggle, maybe that's part of the healing. Like maybe the medicine wants us to have to like liberate it. And I know, you know, I think that I am I like worry about the sort of problematic implications that statement can have if applied to, again, like indigenous people had their sacraments, you know, stomped out and taken away from them. I'm not suggesting that the medicine wants that I'm suggesting, you know, maybe the medicine feels like, Hmm, I think this white guy in Portland would really learn a lot from organizing with a young black woman um, talk about self help and self healing, and nature, and you know, joining together to appeal to city council. Um, or I think that this uh, college student would really be able to tap into her own power and intelligence if she were to read a statement um, in support of a city council resolution, or you know, some guys going to write an article and people are going to give him feedback and he's going to realize those opinions are actually really valid and necessary so i think that the movements are all working and i think that they're working in the ways that they're supposed to and i think that the only thing that's going to stop them is the ridiculous amount of infighting that we're already seeing um that we could probably spend like a whole nother episode talking about but honestly why would we want to
3: And one of the things I want to add to that is, and it's interesting that in our own law firm, we have this dynamic where Hadassah is very interested in legislative change and very involved um, in it. And I'm very interested in uh, contemporary culture. And, uh, you know, she and I could probably (laughs) talk until the cows come home about, you know, what comes first or what is most important to changing laws. I would argue that it's actually culture. And so one of the things that I'm doing is um, working on an article, or it might have to be three, uh, collecting examples, let's say over the five or seven years of how psychedelics have been mentioned in contemporary culture, movies, television, music, um, and so forth, and then analyzing, you know, A, what's being said, B, what's the trend, and 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 see, you know, is any of this being educational or potentially nefarious towards the the larger psychedelic renaissance? But I think that that's something that's very important.
0: I, I mean, I could maybe we do need to have a follow up podcast. I mean, you guys are just launching your company, so let's let's come back here, you know, half a year from now, a year from now. I guarantee you that the conversation is going to be so much different um, because you you are both, um, and I can't wait to meet your partner as well. I mean, you, you've just with the short amount of time we've been able to meet you, you know, we can see your passion and your energy to not only, you know, move this industry forward but to truly help people. I mean, this is all rooted in a place of truly wanting people to find ways that they can help themselves heal and to be well and, you know, that having that root in something and also being a law firm at the same time in many other cases doesn't seem like real life, but you you are doing it in the, in, in the flesh. And so I want to make sure that all of our listeners have an opportunity to connect with you and know how they can learn more about your business. So if you just want to talk about how, you know, we can learn more and how our listeners can find you, you know, we, we really want to watch this journey as you have now just recently launched. We're very curious in following you along uh, on your journey.
3: Excellent. So absolutely. Um, many, many, many ways of contacting us. Our website is plantmedicinelaw.com. Uh, Please send us an email at info at Uh, One of us humans will absolutely respond. Uh, We are uh, also on Instagram, also on Twitter, uh, also on YouTube, um, and also in real life. So chat with us. Um, We are happy to speak on panels. We're happy to speak on conferences. We're happy to help you flesh out your conferences if certain types of people are missing or if you want more fabulous people, um, contact us. It's awesome. We really
0: appreciate your time with us today. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank
0: you, this was really fun. Thank you, Hadas Alderman and Adriana Kurtzer, partners with Plant Medicine Law Group. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts to get cannabis and psychedelic news and updates visit our website at plantmediaproject.com.